right, so we've got this uh, episode eight coming up uh, of the podcast, Wound Masterclass podcast, and the topic for this episode is medical legal aspects of pressure injuries. And joining us, we've got a really great panel, haven't we? We've got Dr. Caroline Fife, who's the Chief Medical Officer of Intellicure, a Texas-based health information technology company, and they pro provide a specialty-specific electronic health record to wound and hyperbaric centers all across the US. Uh, Dr. Fife is really a phenomenal um, panel member. She's always, she makes any topic interesting, I think. Um, I could listen to her for hours because she manages to distill all the important bits of information that you need to know in in a way that just suddenly it becomes clear you know there's like suddenly clarity so uh really excited to have her join this podcast uh, dr michael miller is a wound care doctor in indianapolis indiana and he received his medical degree from demoins university college of osteopathic medicine and he has been in practice for more than 20 years and then the third member of the panel is just a, a exceptional um, speaker who's uh, Dr. Joseph Byrne. Uh, he's a specialist in medical legal consultation. He's a real interest in wound care, pressure injuries, vascular surgery, general surgery, and diabetic foot. And he's actually a vascular surgeon and he really brings with him um, a vast insight into preventing medical legal issues for clinicians. So uh, let's go and uh, listen to this podcast. I'm so excited to have you guys with me for episode eight of this podcast and uh yeah looking forward to having some contentious debate because oh, i know good. that's my idea yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i think even our email messages were kind of i got the sense like there's going to be this can be a fun one mm -hmm. yeah fantastic so dr Byrne and i have done one episode on best medical legal aspects of of wound care but we would love to just have a deep dive into this one uh and First of all, let's address for our audience listening, why is this important for them? Well, I, I would like to take that actually. There are 17,000 lawsuits each year in the US regarding pressure ulcers. It seems like a ridiculously high number to me. And I would like to see us work as a wound care community to whittle that number down to a more reasonable number to prevent all the trauma that it causes to the nursing homes, the hospitals, and the practitioners, most of which is really unnecessary. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know how you got that number, Dr. Byrne, but um, there we've been set up and it's predictable in that when you have something that indeed could be caused by neglect, but can also happen in normal care because of physiologic factors, the fact that you have a thing like a pressure ulcer, a pressure injury, doesn't a priori mean something wasn't done that should have been done or that there was neglect, but that's the message that's been transmitted, that mm -hmm. they're always avoidable and that they're always the result of poor care. And it's so bad. I don't know if you know this, but the National Quality Forum actually has on their platforms, the National Quality Organization for most of the entities in the U.S. that provide health care, they actually say that pressure uh, stage three stage three or stage four pressure ulcer are always the fault of poor care and are reportable events. And they rank them in the same category as uh, inseminating a woman with the wrong sperm or giving a woman the wrong baby. That is the category in which they put pressure 
ulcers, pressure injuries, when we know they can happen in ICU patients because of hypotension. So mm -hmm. we are really in a terrible situation and I can babble on about why it's in Texas. We had tort reform, which was both good and bad for pressure ulcers, but I want Mike to get a word in edgewise. You know, it, it, it's a, it's the concept itself is, is both terrifying and exhilarating. I can tell you one of my favorite lecture topics and kind of audience teasers is I always talk about the state of Indiana. And, you know, I asked the audience, how many stage three, stage four pressure-based tissue injuries, my term, do you believe form in the average Indiana hospital in a year? And of course, the audience shouts out 100 and whatever. And of course, I'm playing with numbers here. And I say, well, let's just say 10. Well, there are 200 hospitals, acute care in Indianapolis. So 200 times 10 should be 2,000 reportable. Because remember, CMS is yep. called this never event. So they got not really. I'll, I'll argue with you about that in just a second. But finish your thought because it's a yeah. No, and, and I'm not. And again, I'm not. I'm not saying CMS. I'm just saying if this is the way we're going to do it, whether I agree or not, and I'm more inclined to agree. With you, these are never events. They shouldn't happen. Two thousand a year, okay. And then I say, okay. The issue is these are mandatory reporting incidents. Now, so you know, uh, uh, ten per month is one hundred and twenty times 200 hospitals is some outrageous number. And I say, let's make this easy because I'm a lousy mathematician. Let's make everything units of 10. So 10 per hospital times 200 hospitals is 2000 times 10 months in a year is 20,000. You would expect that there should be at least 20,000 pressure-based tissue injuries reported. And then the question I ask is, what did Shane Davis, the head of the Indiana Department of Public Health, think about the report what number was reported to him in 2019 28 right 28 yeah. pressure-based tissue injuries stage three and stage four were reported so my point is and then I, I play and say well somebody's lying but that's the issue is one are we actually identifying true pressure-based tissue injuries two the, the concept we're having. What is the ability to quote unquote prevent these? What is it that you should be doing? What is it that you can be doing? And, and again, how do we count for these? Because you're right, medical legally, they're huge. I'm, I'm doing a huge amount of defense work right now, and it's all pressure source. And who's yeah, so that narrative though? Who do we think is driving the narrative that, right, there's oh, someone- Everyone from CMS to nursing organizations. I have thoughts about that, but I want to pick up on a couple of points of what Mike said. The first one is, let me tell you what happened in Texas when we had tort reform, which was a godsend, but they put a limit on punitive damages uh, of about $200,000. There's a cap on how much money you can get um, unless it's child abuse or elder abuse. Mm -hmm. So that's why, at least in Texas, if you go to, if you type in Google pressure ulcers law, the plaintiff's attorneys will have websites that specifically say that all pressure ulcers are a sign of elder abuse. And they're bringing these as elder abuse cases in order to get around the limitations, uh, of statutory limitations on cost. But here's the thing people aren't realizing. That is not a, a civil crime. <laughs> It, it, there are cases already where district attorneys have taken family members and nursing home operators uh, for criminal charges, because once you start talking about elder abuse, that's a crime that mm -hmm. and your malpractice does not cover you for crimes. So 
the reason that I'm really, really worried about this is if it was only in the civil court, we might be able to handle it there. But mm -hmm. they are now creeping into the criminal courts, and we've got to find a way to get a handle on this. But I do want to take issue with one thing Mike said, and that has to do with never events. Mm -hmm. CMS actually did not call these never events. I'm looking at the Federal Register in 2007. Pressure ulcers are under subpart FB, hospital-acquired conditions. The next section is the serious preventable events. And those are the ones that are never events. And they're giving the patient the wrong blood and transfusion, leaving an object in the body after surgery, operating on the wrong body part. Those are never events. Pressure ulcers were not put in the serious preventable event category. That is PR that happened after. What year was that? 2007. Okay. So this whole business of never events is crap that we've been fed mm -hmm. and it's helping the plaintiff's attorneys in order to make a case. It's not true. It's not true by policy and it's not true realistically, physiologically. And is that being perpetuated by the legal profession? Are they By everybody and because mm -hmm. they've got physicians and nurses doing it. So if there's one message we could tell people is don't fall into that trap. When some lawyer says, well, these are never events. Isn't that right? The answer is no, they're not. No, they are prevent no. maybe preventable, but they're not serious medical events. They're just not. Well, and you you made that point, you know, you know, the, the, the way we, we, we talk about it is, you know, the, the three three mitigating circumstances, you know, um, hemodynamic instability, hypotension, whatever, patient noncompliance. And, and then, of course, the the old term, which, you know, is tissue failure. You know, if a patient is demonstrating multiple pressure based tissue injuries or similar, despite documented best care and they still develop one. Well, how do you how do you punish for that? You don't because that is an unavoidable. And the reason is, again, the old term was tissue failure. Looking at the angiosome articles, which are fabulous, but still left me with some questions. You know, that's certainly, you know, uh, Joe talked about predisposing injuries. The fact that someone has injured and injured and injured, how susceptible now is that particular area to an ultimate terminal injury? And now you've got a pressure-based tissue injury or some other ulcer there. All valid points. So, you know, the, I want, the, the concept of that doesn't doesn't work well when you're talking purely not preventable or, or, or you know, or preventable, the opposite, actually, because it's not so. They're mitigating circumstances, but you have to be aware of those. Yeah, I want to be careful what terms we use because unavoidability is a payment term and unavoidability mm -hmm. is a payment policy term that has to do with whether a nursing home or some institution pays a monetary fine. Uh, and it's all around, did you identify risk factors and mitigate against them? What mm -hmm. um, Mike is talking about is medical unpreventability. And I mm -hmm. think that we should make a distinction between them because medical unpreventability doesn't have uh, an objective definition, although I think that we can get there at the mm -hmm. moment. It's uh, whether if I'm working for the plaintiff uh, and, and Mike is working for the defense, it's going to be which what the which one of us does the jury believe the most? That is not that is not the way this should go. No. I think we will find there are objective things in terms of mean uh, uh, mean arterial pressure or lowest diastolic where we could make thresholds and say, look, if we can't get the the pressure head and the tissue perfusion up above this threshold, we can't. We're not 
they're medically unpreventable. They may not always happen, but if they do, we couldn't stop them. But I'll let Joe have a chance to pitch in since he's well, been waiting. Uh, no, I, I mean, I first of all, I, I admired your work over the years tremendously, especially I think your Angie some work is great. Uh, the thing that uh, that bothers me is that uh, I know you resist the word skin failure, but isn't that exactly what you're saying? That there is a point at which the skin fail cannot possibly make. Yeah, but it's not just the skin. That's the thing that worries me about skin failure. First of all, I think skin failure is Stephen Johnson syndrome, but these are infarctions and infarctions don't just affect the skin. It's just that we see the skin. So somehow our minds are kind of caught up with this, but we're talking about at inside to outside lesions, the way an apple rots. So we're talking about muscle, subcutaneous tissue, fat, and skin. So I, what I think is dangerous about the term skin failure is the idea that it's not an entire uh, full thickness depth of a huge segment of the body. It's not just the skin and and skin failure, especially if you think in terms of Stevens Johnson's is um, not something that that you can um, that you can control with interventions. And in point of fact, there may be some interventions we could do to reduce the likelihood of these infarctions. But because we're thinking about them as the skin, we're not doing those things. <laughs> if we don't get it in our head, these are hemodynamic then we're never going to get to, to uh, implementation of, of prevention protocols at work. I mean, there's a tendency with to, to, to think of it in the wrong terms. You know, we, we teach that it starts at the cellular level and the cells then combine to become tissues. The tissues combine to become organs. The organs combine to become systems and it goes up and it goes down. And the problem is, is that there tends to be an isolation of each of these as opposed to looking at them across. That brings the angiosome concept in. That brings Joe's concept of recurrent and repetitive injury. You know, those those are not mutually exclusive. In fact, if you think about it, those, those are symbiotic. You know, why do we get an angiosomal injury? Well, if they've been sitting or trauma or something, now you've got a high risk of a particular area. And again, does that affect just the cell, the tissue, the organ, the system? I mean, the article that I wrote that created so much controversy is I said everything in the system, systemic-based stressors affect everything in the top-down, systems, organs, tissues, cellules. And the problem is if it's only manifesting, as you say, or we're thinking it's only manifesting in the cellular skin level, we're missing a whole lot of other concepts. That are certainly missing prevention protocols. But I think the other right. thing that we're about the term skin failure is that here we go trying to find a word that is a code for this one's not my fault. Uh, no matter, like changing the names of things interminably is not the answer. Because <laughs> no matter what you call these things, whether you call them decubitus ulcers or bed sores or pressure ulcers or pressure injuries, we're still grasping for a word to define the ones that weren't our fault. And I just don't think we're going to get there with fancy names. It's going to have to be with criteria that we establish. But let's also look at the way. No, I, I think that's very true. Has... But, I, but one question I'd like to ask Mike before we go on is that you mentioned your famous article, the death of the <laughs> infamous ulcer. Truer. Doesn't your article <laughs> imply that there is negligence in every case because it's the negligence of avoiding pressure in every area? How can you escape that conclusion reading your 2016 article? 
Well, the, the point is, is that, you know, for example, the angiosomal concept really, and, and it's a lovely concept that makes a lot of sense. You know, my goal was to say, look, if you're going to look at it purely in black and white terms and say pressure relief is the, the it be all end all, you don't do it, they get a pressure based tissue injury, you do it, they don't. My point was, you are leaving a lot of things out, and I called them systemic stressors. You are leaving out other factors that contribute to this. So if you assume that those significant systemic stressors are equal everywhere, every tissue, the skin uniformly, then why would someone develop an injury in one area and one area only? And my point was, these point stressors, why do they exist in that particular area? Why are they sacred coccygeal? Well, why are they not suddenly issue? And that was the point Dr. I made. Dr. pointed out because of the angulation and the pressure on the uh, arteries that supply the sacral angiosome, this is mm -hmm. an area that's particularly vulnerable. And Correct. I guess what I'm saying is if you agree with that, shouldn't you be writing a revised paper in which you- Oh, well, you know, and, and I don't have a problem with that, but the problem, and, I'm, and wrong word problem is that the paper now would have to say, look, it's not merely pressure. It's has that angiosome been previously injured or is the angiosome, the feeding vessels being compromised? Well, then that begs the question, why would that particular angiosome be injured? What would cause injury to that one and that one alone that feeds that area? So now you're expanding your question and your point where repeated injury. I mean, the most common position people do is a 45 degree TV watching position. I don't care who you are. That is the position most people spend their lives in. And arguably, the sacred coccygeal area predisposes. But if the angiosome is good and never injured, then why break down? If it's never been pre-injured, why break down? So I, I think I'm kind of looking at all these factors contribute. I mean, it's it's but is pressure the final cause? That's my and why there? That's been my argument. Why there? Why not the ischii? Why not the back of the head? Why not the, you know, angiosomes feed everything? Why that particular area? That's my Dr. Five has question. the answer to this. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> yeah. Again, we'll, we'll have a fun time discussing this, but I want to point out something you mentioned in terms, uh, Joe, when you were talking about how many litigation cases there are. And Mike, you were talking about how many uh, pressure injuries or ulcers, whatever we're going to call them, there might or might not be in a year. Um, the the fact is, uh, if your point, Mike, was that people don't report everything, you're absolutely right. In fact, um, I have a story I won't delve into now, but I know for a fact that the CEO of a hospital system where I was working lied about the pressure ulcer data from the hospital system in That's order to right. get a bonus for safety when he retired. Like, I know that that happened. So... Now, when you've got a situation that you blame people just because it's there without any context about the fact they were in the ICU or they were, you know, in a prone position on PEEP where there was no way they could continue to perfuse their mm -hmm. tissues, until we establish some criteria for medical unpreventability, the only option people have to say it's not my fault is to lie. And right. that absolutely a ridiculous system. The, but, but even so, you know, we just finished, the Alliance of Interest Stakeholders just finished another analysis of Medicare claims. And the prevalence of pressure ulcers in 2019 is almost identical to those in 2014. And even though all of the interventions that have been done have brought uh, the frequency down, 
we've hit a threshold we don't seem to be able to get below, which is about mm -hmm. a 10% incidence. And what that tells me is that when you've got, when you're implementing every intervention that you can, could, in fact, Laura, fascinating geriatrician in California, got the Department of Justice to fund a prospective trial in the top performing nursing homes in California, and I think they use some in Oregon. And they, they documented that the perfect, the best possible care was delivered to all of the residents and 24 of them still got stage four pressure ulcers, most of the time in association with episodes of hypotension and, and the dying process. But her, she wasn't at all interested in wounds. Laura is interested in elder abuse. And I, I, the study was so fascinating. And the fact she got the Department of Justice to pay for it, I called her on the phone to say, look, you don't know me. I just needed to know you were real because you did this amazing thing nobody in wound care has. But I'm curious about why. And she said, the problem is she sees patients who have pressure ulcers due to neglect. And she wanted to know, not being a wound doc, is there a way to tell a pressure ulcer that was caused by neglect versus one that was simply caused because of natural processes? Wow. And the answer she came to was, no, you can't tell the difference. The only thing they determined in their study is that most of the time, if a pressure ulcer is medically unpreventable, they only have one stage four. Whereas in cases of neglect, they often have multiple, which I think is a very interesting observation. But the point is, there's a prospective trial funded by the DOJ that showed that optimal care, which was observed to happen, doesn't prevent these. And yet we still keep having this argument. And what I think it's telling us is that all of the interventions we currently have, they can fix certain types of problems, but we've now hit the wall. And I think that's a hemodynamic issue. We have no pressure ulcer prevention protocols that are directed at hemodynamic factors. So those are the ones that we haven't been able to budge the needle on. I used to joke and say this, the obvious solution is to put in what I call the George Jetson theory. You remember the Jetsons cartoon? Oh yeah. Anti-gravity, everybody hovers anti-gravity. There's no pressure. That's the answer, Carolyn. I'd like to hear your answer to Dr. Miller's point. He says his point is, okay, if it's an angiosome problem, why do we see it? Why only? there? Yeah. Why there? Yeah. yeah, so I would like to answer that. And it's, I gave, the first time I gave this angiosome talk was I feel like we, you know, I feel like the, the evidence is overwhelming that stage ones are ischemia reperfusion injuries and DTIs are infarctions. So you, they didn't, mm -hmm. they went Agreed. past the ischemia reperfusion stage and now the tissue's dead and it's going to, the death is going to work its way out. Yep. And so when a nurse who listened to this talk said, um, but it's still pressure. And the answer is, yes, you're right. The, well, I don't have all the answers. I found some interesting MRIs of seated and supine patients where you can see, you know, as the vessels come out of the parasacral arteries or as they come out of the uh the, for example, the inferior and superior gluteal, they exit the muscles in a really tight fascial plane. So it all of the ones that we're familiar with seem those vessels seem to be vulnerable as they're as they're perforating the muscle belly and therefore easy to catch. And it's possible they start as venous infarctions because that might explain why they look um, hyperemic initially. I, it may be that we're knocking off because you can knock off either the vein or the arterial supply to an angiosome. It'll die just the same. It's just that one is white and cold and the other is engorged and, 
and and warm. So I I'm gonna and I think that's probably why uh, low albumin is so tightly associated with DTIs and stage fours because the uh, oncotic pressure drops so precipitously at the tissue level. So my short winded answer instead of my long winded one is because of the vulnerability of certain arteries in certain positions. But that would account for why you can have patients who have butt cheek necrosis. You know, we see that all the time, and especially mm -hmm. in OR, patients lose butt cheeks. All right, well, that right. can't be compression between a bony surface, with a, uh, between a bone and a surface for your butt cheeks. So, but it turns out those butt cheeks are supplied by arteries that come out of the parasacral area that's mm. very vulnerable to pressure. So you, you uh, end up occluding the vessels at the sacrum and you don't see the problem at the sacrum. You see it in the butt cheeks that are supplied by those arteries. Right. So it's yes, it's still pressure, but it's pressure in conjunction with hemodynamic factors. And that's the missing link. And the reason we're not making any more gains on this because we don't have any mitigation protocols directed at hemodynamic factors. Well, to make your point and, and, and extend to it, when does all this start? Even if we agree, and it's a lovely concept, I don't disagree with it, of, of you know, the, 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 the proximity of these vessels and their proneness to whatever, um, it doesn't happen in 24 hours, does, and I'm asking this rhetorically, 24 hours, is this cumulative over three months, six months? Is well, this we, we don't know of, the answer. Yeah. yeah, for lots of When those, does it we start? We, we don't know the answer, and the biggest right. problem, by the time you see it, it's too late. Right. And I think that's that this is the other fallacy because I could I could rag on the NPUAP staging system, NPIOP, I don't care what you call it. That oh, you don't want to get me started on that, Carolyn. Don't get us started, Megan, on the staging system because yeah, uh, to start any debates on I, I would love to rip it up and explain why it just has only gotten worse since they made changes in 2016. But the point is that we talk about these as though they progress. They don't progress. If you have a deep tissue injury, it will become a stage four pressure ulcer. It didn't progress. It evolved. When you right. burn your finger in the kitchen, the first thing that happens is it turns red. And then next day you have a blister. And then in a few days, the blister peels off and you have a little superficial wound. Like It keeps changing, but not because you keep sticking your finger in the uh, oven. <laughs> you know, Once you've done that injury, there's an evolutionary phase that's quite predictable that we know exactly what's going to happen. And far as we know, we can't reverse it. So I think we need to be careful of any of using the word progression when in fact they're evolving after these ischemic insults. Well, and I think, you know, I agree with your earlier point is that the staging, I've always said two stages, open and closed, because it doesn't, uh, it has Even nothing not to do. <laughs> yeah. And the other one, the other one I say is, I always ask, what is the difference in treatment other than pressure relief? between a stage one and stage four. What's the difference in treatment? And I tell people, you know what the answer is? Prayer. You pray like hell that the DTI does not open up. And that's all that you've got to differ. Yeah, that's all we have right now. That's it. You pray like hell because it's stage four. Uh, DTI yeah. to become an open is luck of the draw. Luck yeah, of and the draw. I would say most, most of the ones I've seen, I've never seen a DTI that didn't become a stage four. I, I will say that it could happen, but I haven't personally seen mm -hmm. it. And once you're there, you're there. Then, then you're there. Then <laughs> so you then, need us. Yeah, exactly. Then we're going to end up needing a, a good expert witness and a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be like that. So we That's are, right. it sounds like we're doing the opposite. We're not oversimplifying. We're, and I don't want to say overcomplicating, 
but arguably it is because the be all end all is okay wh which came first the chicken the egg the shell the feathers the bones you know the the again having read the earliest article of the angiosome i forget the gentleman's name that wrote the initial initial and, and having read yours too you realize that it makes too much sense to ignore yeah it yeah that was dr bain classic surgeon who would be able to see the anatomical correlation i think that's the irony of what we've been missing i've challenged people if you have a deep tissue injury or a stage four that can't be described by the angiosome maps that we've known about for 50 years like send me a picture of it because i'll believe it when i see it Correct. otherwise these affect predictable anatomical areas served by a named artery and vein. Yep. That, and if we can get on that bandwagon, you know, you guys remember the story about um, Semmelweis who went insane. He'd realized that the reason women were dying of puerperial fever was because the mm -hmm. doctors were going to the anatomy lab and then delivering a baby. This was before the germ theory. And he reduced the mortality rate in the uh, hospitals uh, to the same level as the nurses who were midwives delivering babies, but the doctors felt they were being accused of killing patients and they stopped washing their hands and the death rate went up again and some yeah. wives went insane, died in an insane asylum. Well, it just goes to show you 10 years later, we had the germ theory. And then all of a sudden people go, oh, that's why I need to wash my hands because of these animalcules that get on my hands. Where we are now, you, you can't mitigate something if you don't understand the pathophysiology. So if I'm right that these are hemodynamic, then we have to see a generation of prevention protocols that include things that can help with tissue perfusion, whether it's getting blood pressure up if we can, encouraging people to drink fluids, um, uh, and being less cavalier about hypotension and anemia because we've got permissive anemia that we learned from the military, but it doesn't work so well for old people. Uh, you know, if we really focus on the hemodynamic, I think we could finally bend the curve on this, but I don't think we will be able to get below a 10% incidence uh, with the current uh, protocols that we have because they're missing a major causal reason. Do you think it's both venous and arterial combined? It might be either one. Uh, and it won't surprise me if it could happen either way, but I'm actually putting my money on Venus because when you look at the the uh, unstageables, especially when they first begin to form, you know, it's got that messy, uh, uh, the margin is not clearly demarcated. It looks kind of bruised and hyperemic. Uh, it, it looks like you, you uh, tied a rubber band around your finger and let your finger become engorged and fall off. Like it looks like a venous occlusion event rather than arterial in most cases. And I, and I think that makes, we're going to need somebody to do sense. research. Yeah. But, but it actually mimics, doesn't it? It mimics flap failure, doesn't it? Because exactly. we're using the same theory of angiosome. Venous congestion. Exactly. Inflow or it's outflow, it's venous congestion or it's arterial, you know, inflow. That's why you need, you need to be telling us, Megan, how this works as a plastic surgeon, because <laughs> I think that's the, perspective that we've sort of been missing is it's been staring at us for 50 years that there are very specific patterns of injury and and we've just somehow gotten we've drunk the kool-aid that these happen from the outside in it's just not the way that vtis and the stage fours occur I, I i want to come back to this idea of skin failure because for every other organ in the body whether we're talking about the kidney the liver the heart we have failure of those organs and it's divided into acute 
chronic and end stage. And I think the skin paradigm fits nicely there. The end stage are the ones you're talking about, Caroline, the, the angiosomal infarctions. The acute are Steven Johnson syndrome and burns, that sort of thing. Yeah. In the middle, you have this huge number of patients, like the case I was just recently consulted on, a 95-year-old woman who has untreatable breast cancer. She can't eat. She's severely dehydrated or malnourished. She's not dehydrated. Her blood pressure is perfectly stable, but she has an ulcer. And now the family wants to sue this nursing home uh, in a patient who I would say has skin failure in the sense that she cannot heal this ulcer no matter what they do. So yeah, so I think uh, is what appeals to you about the term skin failure that it does a good job of representing this one's not our fault. Is that why that term appeals to you? Because it feels like a more defensible terminology. Well, I think it describes the reality of what's happening. The problem is we don't have good biomarkers. Like for the kidney, we have creatinine and all this. For the heart, mm -hmm. we have a infection. We and this is where I think as researchers we have not done our work. We should be able to develop skin, whether we're going to biopsy using a piece of tape to take some cells off yeah. and test the lab. We should be able to develop actual biomarkers to say this patient will not heal. This patient's cells are not capable of proliferating or whatever. Uh, and Well, we are talking about two different things. One has to do with healing, but the other has to do with the fact that they happen. And I don't think right. those are the prevention. But you're right that biopsies would help us tremendously. And like I say, my only issue with skin failure is the deceptive idea that we're only talking about the skin. We're talking about the skin, the subcutaneous tissue, the fat, the muscle, and maybe even the bone. And right. so I just don't want people to think that somehow this is skin deep. In fact, that's a very interesting point for stage ones. And you know, I published an article about what happened to my son, totally healthy kid, maybe a few pounds overweight, goes in to get a mandibular reconstruction and ends up with six stage one pressure injuries on his body after he comes out of surgery. And I went and pulled the anesthesia records. They were running him at a mean arterial pressure of a low 50s, which you can handle when you're 25 years old. But what was fascinating is that even though he was supine the whole time, he got a, a stage one on his lateral left heel and his lateral right ankle. And that's the point where you go, wait a minute, he was always on his back in the operating room and he comes out with pressure ulcers in an area of the body that had no pressure. That's because they had wedges at the back of his Achilles and the wedges knocked off the lateral calcaneal on one side and the lateral malleolar on the other side. In other words, the wedge caused the problem. But having said that, the fascinating thing is, although the redness went away in a couple of days, he had excruciating sural nerve pain for a month. Hmm. So even stage ones, we think about them like they're the skin. No. If they're ischemia reperfusion injuries, the nerve gets affected in Correct. people who can feel pain and convey what they feel. When you look at stage ones, they are painful. So that's another thing that keeps getting missed is stage ones. We're not talking about the skin. We're talking about ischemia reperfusion. Then the tip of the iceberg is the skin, but it actually involves the nerve and the muscles underneath. So then it apparently, then even he was, he still had pain even after the visible pressure injury was gone. So that gets back to Joe's conversation about the recurrent injuries. Thankfully, you know, as a young, healthy kid, he gets over his surgery and he's off to the races. Uh, if you have somebody who has a hip replacement and is frail and they end up with a heel pressure injury, it could be a different story. But 
I think we just don't want to keep believing that the skin is the only structure involved just because that's the one we see. Joe's right. We need biopsies of these. It's just kind of hard to do that in this situation. We we need to figure out what what can be tested that will tell us about the patient's capacity for maintaining their skin integrity. Yeah, I don't think we're going to get that from a biopsy, but here's what I do think we can get. We need core samples so that we can demonstrate when you have a DTI or when you have you know, whatever the changes are, the tissue death that occurs at the various levels. It won't just be as biomarkers. Think about this. We have cancer stages and part of the cancer staging is because people have gone to surgery and they've cut it out and they've put it under a microscope and they know what it looks like. We have almost no biopsy data of the deep tissues in people who develop pressure ulcers. Like Joe's absolutely right. This is a huge gap. Whether we'd be able to use that to predict what will happen to them, I don't know, but it certainly would prove where the level of ischemia begins, and that would be a start. See, I like the concept we talked about earlier of venous versus arterial. You know, this is this is an argument we get into for treatment of venous insufficiency, venous hypertensive ulcers all the time, where we keep hearing ABI, 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 and my argument is, how many of you think you are Schwarzenegger enough to wrap a four-layer, two-layer compression and shut off arterial blood flow? And the answer is, well, suppose they have atherosclerosis. I said, well, you just made my point. You now have a calcified vessel. Unless you're Arnold, you're not crushing calcium. So this concept of shutting off the circulation is in arterial is ridiculous. The opposite for venous, though, makes a lot of sense. And I'd love to see in those core biopsies, are there microthrombi in the venous system? You know, yeah, that would be so fascinating. We really maximizing do. the arterial system. I mean, for years I've been using pharmacotherapeutics for limb preservation that maximize mic- nitrous oxide in the vessels and increase potentially endothelial nitric oxide, maximum vasodilatation, microcirculation, and no one's doing it. They're just buying that, that, those are the very things we need to be talking about, Nick. Because if it turns out that we can just have a little bit of hydration better and, and have people's out because, you know, low albumin, that's why the venous, the relationship between low albumin and pressure injury, uh, to me, sort of hints at venous. But all of the things that Mike just mentioned that we could do to maybe mitigate, they're not on anybody's so-called no. pressure prevention protocol. No. And, and most of them, you know, we're not talking about dangerous drugs here. We're talking about, you know, trying to get your blood pressure up as much as realistically possible and optimizing your uh, volume fluid intake and making sure you're not horribly anemic. I mean, those are kind of medical things that we ought to be doing, right? That's not yeah. shocking. <laughs> it's not I mean, crazy. If mean or- I mean, if mean arterial pressure drops and they're hypotensive, you know, does mean venous pressure drop? What well, has to? Reduce yeah, blood flow. Low yes. albumin means you know low albumin means lower intravascular colloid osmotic pressure. That means the fluids yeah. are leaking out; they're diffusing. So now you've got tissues that are suffused. You've got less fluid. You've got quote unquote thicker, more os- more colloid. Yeah. But how can that not affect venous flow? How yeah, can that? But, not you know, affect- maybe clopidogrel can help you re- uh, help you with the pressure ulcer formation. I don't know, yeah. but. Uh, you know, we ought to be asking those questions. I think somebody's got to get into uh, an animal lab with this concept, because I think there's a limit to what we can do to figure it out in humans. Uh, but that that means that we have to convince people to stop being focused on moisture friction shear and start looking at vascular supply. But the lawyers are going to love this checklist, aren't they? They're going to look you at You just the- read my mind. 
you they're just read this checking. They're going to go to yeah. those nursing home records. They're going to look at all the hypotensive patients that they have there and say, you know, you saw that this here's, here's where I think we could still win on that one because, as I said, if, if you know, Joe and I end up on opposite sides of the courtroom, which we won't, or Mike and I, because we're all in, in, in agreement, but it ends up being um, who can speak the most convincingly. I believe we can make objective findings to say below a mean arterial pressure of X, we cannot guarantee the tissue to be sustained. Below a lowest diastolic of Y, below a tissue oxygen carrying capacity of fill in the blank. That's entirely possible for us to do with prospective uh, studies in hospitalized right. patients. And then we can make a, a criteria to say, look, we're going to do everything we can, but if the patient drops below these thresholds that we've established as being the ones that will not allow you to sustain your tissue, then don't blame us. That right. to me is an objective uh, threshold. Seems like a smarter thing to do than to find new names for things, because that way we've stood up to say, we did all the things we could to prevent this infarction and it happened anyway. And let's face it, the reason that we get sued, you know, think about all the times we've seen people go into heart failure from volume overload, or we've seen right. people go into renal failure from not getting enough fluids, iatrogenically in the hospital. Like we cause those things to fail oh, regularly and no one sues about them because you can't see them with your naked eye and they don't cause a big gaping hole. And, and it's a did to did not story if it goes to court about whether they should or shouldn't have gotten more uh, vascular intravascular volume. But with a pressure ulcer, we're just like, okay, well, it's there. It's somebody's fault. Who's going to pay? That That is a mindset that is very dangerous. Correct. And it doesn't help anybody. <laughs> no, no. I mean, well, the, the end result is that, that the, the money exchanges hands and nothing changes. And the plaintiff's mentality of, well, I want to prevent this from happening to anyone else. Yeah, yeah. It's fantasy. That's it's fantasy. About the money. Yeah. Right. You almost need this sort of sepsis pathway, don't you? That, uh, you know, time is tissue as it as it should be in this kind of patient group instead of mm -hmm. the sort of mentality there is at the moment. Exactly. You exactly said it. Exactly. And, you know, it's interesting. I often refer to some work Frank Avales did at his hospital in Natchitoches. Natchitoches, Louisiana, it's, you know, sometimes the small hospitals are the perfect opportunity for us to observe an ecosystem because you can control all of it. And, you know, they were implementing a mitigation strategy by having all the patients who were conscious and could safely drink, maximize their fluid intake. And they had no pressure injuries during that time. Like, huh. It is amazing how much volume support you could give just by taking a few extra swigs of this. Yeah. If you could just remind, uh, especially elderly people to keep drinking. Is that on anybody's pressure mitigation protocol? Well, no, maybe, no. but I don't think so. Turn Q2. Um, they finish this much volume today while you can, and then you'll have a less a lower likelihood of a, of a pressure injury. That's the kind of thing we need to be. And I don't even like the name pressure ulcer prevention protocol. I hate that trying to work for defense because calling them a prevention protocol implies that they can all be prevented. We right. know they can't all be prevented. Call them mitigation strategies, but don't right. imply. And the get to zero campaigns by the phone companies, like for goodness sake, does anybody think that a phone pad will get us to zero pressure ulcers? It's just not no. going to. So that hurts us instead of helps us. 
And we see that. It's, that was one of the funniest advertising is I was with a facility and they said, we've got the silicone foams that we're going to be putting over pressure prone areas and that'll take care of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it helps with moisture. And what? Friction. Well, I'm sure what? it helps with friction, but moisture builds up underneath those and then you got to peel them off to see what the skin is doing. Yeah, you know, it's uh, interesting though that the, 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 the recently released NPIAP guidelines uh, recommend silicone foam pads for pressure yeah. prone areas. So I don't know why there's a disconnect between what experts seem to feel and the NPIAP. Maybe Caroline knows the answer to that. Well, but. I I better be careful what I say, but here's we know when my son got his jaw surgery, his teeth are wired together. He can only communicate writing a note. He wakes up and I give him the pad and paper and say, how do you feel? And he said, what did you do to my heel? Now, this is a kid whose jaw is wired shut, who's just been in a four, five hour surgery. And the thing yeah. he felt was the pain of his heel. So, and I had to pull the foam pad off his heel to see the ischemia reperfusion. Yeah. His heel. Like mm -hmm. this is the problem right here is that moisture friction, great to have protection. Otherwise you got to take the pads off to see what's going on and you're going to miss stuff. So I really think it has been not well implemented, but now everybody's afraid not to do it. I mean, my hospital spends half a million dollars a year on foam pads. My um, uh, hospital system was spending $6 million a year with all the hospitals together. Think about what we could do with mattresses and other things if we had $6 million a year to spend on pathways that might be better than foam pads. I mean, how many, how many quote unquote stage ones have a dressing? I said, well, what is it you're doing? The skin is intact. Yeah. It's reduced. The, and we the want to watch it. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. We put a foam on it. It protects the skin. And I said, how? It, well, well, we it don't know. The told us. Kind of scoot on your butt across the uh, carpet, you know? Foam pad yeah. might be very handy if you're going to do that. But otherwise, it has limitations. And, and what's the feeling about the COVID-related pressure injuries? Uh, how does that fit into... All of this. One of the things I, I think probably happened with COVID is I think that these the staffing problems became even more acute, uh, which I think probably led to less repositioning and so forth. In fact, one of the questions I wanted to ask uh, of both of you, all three of you, I guess, is that should we not be getting more politically active about insisting on mandated staff ratios? Uh, this, I think, there's no question that when you see some of the staffing issues in the nursing homes, this is a setup for pressure yeah, ulcer. Yeah, it's a setup. I agree. And well, one thing, sorry, finish no, your thought. I was say, because... California has gone to this mandated system, uh, one to two in the ICU, one to four on the floor. That's the maximum. Uh, I would like to see uh, uh, the rest of the states take that up. I think that could be a very effective means of preventing some of these ulcers. If really we can find enough staff to do it, I think that continues to be the problem. Uh, My in fact, point. I, I gave many years ago a seminar called pressure injuries and the pressure, pressure ulcers in the law since pressure ulcers were the term at the time. And we brought plaintiff's attorneys in. We had this big meeting here in Houston to talk about how they win cases. The number one um, volume generating uh, plaintiff's attorney in Houston agreed to show up and give a talk. Wouldn't send me his notes. Comes with an entourage of people. It was very humorous, but he gave the most <laughs> chilling talk of the presentation because he said you can win these cases just by doing background checks on the staff and they'll have patients who are felons who are on the nursing home staff. And as soon as he says, look at this guy's criminal record, people start settling out of court, totally 
unrelated to what happened. So we have all kinds of problems with staffing that you and I aren't going to figure out here, but I will say something about COVID as the perfect storm. So imagine if these are vascular, which we think they are, that you're going to cause hypotension, hypercoagulability, and hypoxia, all three at the same time, and maybe with people prone, where they have less subcutaneous tissue padding. What a perfect storm. Mm. Uh, tissue oxygenation plummets to practically nothing, and you can't move them if they're intubated. So I can't imagine a more perfect illustration for pressure ulcer formation than the hypercoagulability, low PO2 and uh, hypotension. And you get them on a ventilator and give them heat. So now you've dropped their venous return dramatically because of positive pressure in the lungs. That is, COVID was the perfect storm for these. True. That's a great point. And then that begs the question, you know, it, with those three factors, what effect does turning really have on them? I mean, if they're in the ICU, they yeah. are on a super mattress, you know, a full enveloping, all surfaces contacting, you know. So now all of a sudden we're saying, well, maybe pressure has little, to, maybe contributory, but. Well, what, I think what you what have is saying, yeah. where, let's face it, you, 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 the, we've all been tired enough to lie down in bed so exhausted that you wake up in the morning in the same position, right? Mm -hmm. I know that I'm not the only one that that's happened to, where you lay down and eight hours I'm later, haven't moved a bit and maybe your you know fingers are numb. Well, you know, well, we don't get a pressure ulcer. How could we stay in one position for eight or 12 hours and everything be fine? It's because our blood pressure is normal. But you know, you put somebody in an ICU, maybe with unstable CSF pressure, and you just have to agree and this is the other thing I think gets overlooked is that the body's mechanism for coping with hypotension is to clamp down on the Take skin the perfusion because you are trying to save the brain and the kidneys. So here's the body's natural response going into shock, which is to reduce flow to this uh, skin and subcutaneous tissue because those can be regrown more or less. At least you can heal mm -hmm. them. Uh, and, and then we give people vasopressors to whip that even more to preferentially send blood to the brain and the kidneys away from the periphery. And then we're mad Correct. because the skin succumbs. Like the, the, it's just almost a joke that we do these things in order to save non-negotiable organs like the brain and the kidneys. And then you get punished for allowing the skin to take the hit. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, what were we supposed to do? Just let them have brain damage? Was that the alternative? I just don't think anybody thinks that's okay. Yeah, no, true. And what, what do we all think, take home messages for our audience who are listening to this uh, really wonderful debate? Uh, you know, each of you have brought just a wealth of information and experience here. And I feel like we could do another two hours of this. <laughs> it's just like, I'm looking at the clock, I'm thinking this can't be, you know, us trying to wind down this session because it almost feels like we've just got warmed up, you know? Warmed up. Yeah. Well, my, my summary is going to be... Uh that uh, we need to not call pressure ulcers never events because they aren't. We uh, should include hemodynamic things in anything we are gonna call a pressure mitigation strategy. Um, we ought to be far more aware of hemodynamic factors in their formation. And we need to develop a, a proactive stance to people with high risk factors to allow docs to make a note and explain why they're in a medically dangerous state as far as their tissues are concerned. Thank you, Dr. Five. It's a real, real pleasure as always to spend time with you. And how about you, Dr. Miller? 
I come to um, you. My, I agree wholeheartedly with my colleague. Um, early identification, you know, uh, we talk about diabetic neuropathic ulcers, get their shoes off, get their socks off. Look, same for these patients that you feel are at high risk or at risk of all is, you know, that's where the, the nursing assistants are such a valuable entity. They're the ones bathing them. They're the ones dressing them is in a good light, looking at the entire skin surface and trying to identify these things early, because that's when you stand the best chance of intervention and mitigation. We'll use that word and mitigation, but taking the time to look and see um, too many factors to identify anything specifically. Um, proactive is probably the best way to be reactive. Thank you so much, Dr. Miller. And uh, how about you, Dr. Byrne? Have you any messages that you think are key for the audience? Yeah, I guess my main message would be, I think we have not done a very good job of communicating to the public, to attorneys, to other healthcare people, that there is such a thing as an unavoidable pressure ulcer, that this, this is still viewed as a never event. Yeah. And I think it's incumbent on us as a wound care community to get out and educate people. And I... I I don't know exactly what that would look like, but I think that until we change this perception, until we get people to realize that uh, this is a real problem, it does not end, need to be resolved with a two hundred or three hundred thousand dollar trial and a multi million mm -hmm. dollar reward every time this happens. It, it's doesn't not that kind of problem. I think that's incumbent on us to do a better job of education. I agree. Absolutely. Well said. Thank you so much to our panel. Dr. Five, we'll let you get back to the humidity in Texas. <laughs> thank, you. thank you for asking me to participate. It's been a thank pleasure. So, so, my, so nice to talk to you guys. Thank you. Yeah, and Dr. Bye. Miller, you're going back to 1996, Indiana. Yes, indeed, I am, right? Driving my 1996 Fiat <laughs> sports car, you bet. <laughs> and Dr. Byrne, you're in Alaska. You're going to. Yeah, it's 56 degrees and sunny here in Alaska. Oh, so. oh, oh gosh. <laughs> Make up the spare room. <laughs> all right. Thank you, guys. Take care, all. Bye. You Thank you again. Bye. Bye. That podcast could have gone on for another two hours. It just went really quickly, and I think this this combination of of panel members writes really well for the podcast because they each have such expertise, uh, but they come at it from such a different. Uh, view aspects uh, in terms of their experiences and you know although they disagree uh, on a lot of things and I guess on we found out what some of those things were during this uh, kind of 45 minutes uh, of our podcast but I think that the fact that they disagree on a lot of issues actually helps us get an insight into the topic in a bit more detail than if if everybody was in agreement about definitions and if everybody was in agreement about mechanisms and etiology, somehow the fact that they're not in agreement on certain things is uh, is really kind of enlightening for, for us as an audience. Uh, so, yeah, I really enjoyed that one and I'm excited for the next podcast. So don't forget to register for the Wound Masterclass Academy where you'll have access to all of our events for free, which includes the Master Series 60 Minutes Interactive as well as the podcasts and also the Global Innovation in Wound Care Summit series, um, of which we have uh, four in total, and we're planning to do them for the rest of the year. So thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next time.